0: My name is Ella Femmer and this is Deprivation Discourse. Every episode I sit down with young people and professionals and we have a real open discussion about what it is to be a young person in poverty today. You can find out more info about the research project behind this podcast at deprivationdiscourse.com. So I'm here with Gemma today who is the LGBT officer at University of York, um, and was a guest speaker at the Yorker's class conference in 2018. They're an advocate for working class officers in universities uh, to represent the experiences of working class students at uni. Hello Gemma. Hi. Hello, thank you for joining me today. Thanks very much. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you do at university um, and what your role is as LGBTQ officer as well?
1: Yeah, um, well, I am a music student um, at uni and I got involved um, with the LGBTQ officer role at USU um, by being an LGBTQ officer at college first, um, in Halifax College, uh, which I really enjoyed. I mean, that was mainly kind of like events based, um, but it was something that I enjoyed and I, I kind of got to see the network through that um and meet the different people on the network at the time um and I thought that there were some kind of changes that could have been made um and some room for improvement there and I really felt that that was something I could take on board um so I ran um in the USU elections I did get elected and since then I've held some really cool events and campaigns and stuff um and I'm now my second year of that I couldn't stay away from it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So what kind of events have you run? You said really cool events. What kind of events?
1: Um, I think the biggest one and the best one that we did was a campaign called LGBTQ Level 2. And the whole idea of that was um, an LGBTQ education campaign to just kind of give um, sort of people who felt like they needed a bit more information on LGBT issues um, and kind of intersectional issues just kind of give them like an insight to all the different areas um, and different sort of letters of the acronym different identities different sexualities that sort of thing Um, and it was really cool it was it was two weeks long um, we had guest speakers um, we had Q&A sessions um, and all the feedback I got was really good Um, I had a friend who um, from York St John's University who came in and gave a presentation on Millicent Price who was a suffragette from York um, and um, she sort of analysed her diary um, and in that she was kind of talking about sort of more identifying with our brothers and she was talking about which of the panker sisters she found more attractive oh which was really God. cool <laughs> um, so yeah we had like a lot of interest stuff in it it was brilliant yeah
0: that's so cool yeah I love that as well I just thought shout out um to Anne oh, Anne, Anne Lister Anne Lister yeah. yes from Shipton <laughs> how she's, I think she was the first documented lesbian um, which is ridiculous because I think she was running like the 1800s or something yeah. like that um, and she's just Down the road in in Halifax. No, was it Halifax? Yeah, Shipton. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Mm. there you go. Just thought we'd shout her out. And people say that they haven't existed for that (laughs) long. (laughs) Yeah, she's the first lesbian ever, no. Um, So that's really great. Could you also talk a little bit about, so the context of this is that I know Gemma through, um, I went to something called, the York Class Conference, which was put on by the first working class officer at University of York, um, Connor Drake. So he put on a conference last year, which I went to, I just happened to kind of turn up to it. And it was fantastic. And Gemma was one of the guest speakers there. And Gemma was talking about their experiences um, of being a working class student, um, experiencing homelessness. Um, and yeah, and I thought they would be a really good addition to the podcast talking about their lived experiences and also how they've managed to get to um, a Russell Group University where we were talking about as well how we know lots of people in, in private schools. Um, and we've kind of ended up at the same university as well, which is which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that and your experience and also talking about what it was like to, to be at the Yorkers class conference as well?
1: Yeah, um, mainly what I spoke about um, at the conference, um, I mean, Connor's a really good friend of mine. Um, I think he did a fantastic job as working class officer in the first one as well. Um, It's definitely set an example for others to follow. Um, And what I spoke about at the conference was sort of my experience um, of when I was, um, when I came out to my parents when I was 15 um, and it it was a bit of a rocky start um, and we we just had a huge disagreement over it. And um, it was, yeah, it was like, a. I think it was just, just after New Year. Um, and I actually left home for two years after that, um, which was very difficult. And I mean, I was lucky to have a lot of friends around me who were supportive. First night that I was out, I stayed at a friend's house who who wasn't actually home it was his parents who were in i sort of went to his house because i didn't really know what else to do um and his parents were like are you okay and i kind of just told them everything that happened luckily i had a really good relationship with them um but obviously i couldn't stay there permanently it was it was a sort of temporary fix to the situation um so i was kind of staying with different friends for a few months um sort of here and there my mother was trying to contact us sometimes um because it was sort of my stepdad's influence on her, why she didn't really agree with what like who I was, um, which was quite sad, really. Um, but I know it happens with a lot of marriages and, and with a lot of parents and that sort of thing. But it was something that I knew couldn't be fixed at the time. Um, and my mum wanted us to come home, but he didn't, so it was something that was going to conflict their relationship as well. Um, so I ended up just sort of staying with different friends, like I said, um, and then eventually one of my friend's parents said, look, you can stay here until... Um, you basically get back on your feet and find somewhere permanent. I mean, at the time I was doing my GCSEs, so it was a little bit difficult. So I was, my grades were slipping. Um, But I mean, I did, I did all right overall. I did pass most things, (laughs) luckily. Um, But yeah, it was finding a job as well at the age of 15 is impossible. Mm. (laughs) I don't know if anyone's tried. Um, So I didn't really have a job until I turned 16, which was around seven months later. Um... And I, I started working at a Weatherspoons, um, which was a terrible wage. I think I was—I think I was on like four pound an hour or something. Yeah. Um At that age, was crazy. And I was—I was getting emergency tax because I was on like a zero hour contract. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was such a nightmare. Um, and I was getting paid probably about thirty quid a week, and I had to pay my friend's dad rent, um, which was twenty pound a week. <laughs> so, oh, wow. so I didn't really leave you for, with a lot. And then I had to go to college, and I had no idea what I wanted to do at college um so I went to do media because I did that um as one of my choices at GCSE and I absolutely hated it I think I was there for like three months and I was like I can't do this anymore I'm not interested um and it was costing a lot of money which I didn't really have at the time um so I ended up just taking a year out and just working um and that was when I started playing guitar because for me it was sort of a a therapeutic thing which kind of sounds a little bit cliche (laughs) um but it was it was something that kind of just it took my mind off everything that was going on um and I just sort of learned by sitting watching YouTube videos and that sort of thing um and I just kind of like watch what they were doing and struggle my way through it and just get really frustrated be like I can't do it and then I just keep trying and eventually I got all right at it um and I decided I wanted to go to college to study music uh, just because it was the only thing that I really enjoyed. So I did that um, and I absolutely loved college. It was fantastic to be at college in Sunderland. Um, I had fantastic teachers, Tony and John. Uh, big shout out to them. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, I did, I did really well. Um, I think I got... I got mostly merits and a few distinctions, um, which was really good. And I decided that I wanted to go to uni to do it, which was obviously a big and scary thing. Mm. Um, and most people who were at Sunderland decide to stay in Sunderland because you do your first year of your degree still at the college, um, and it's a lot cheaper but I didn't want to do that I wanted to move away I wanted like a fresh start mm-hmm. um, so I just started applying all over the place <laughs> um, and I, I, my first choice was actually Liverpool Institute of Performing Arts which is incredibly prestigious I think they had like a 4% acceptance rate under the course that I mm. wanted to do uh, but I just wanted to try um, and I actually did really well in the application process because they don't they do it a bit differently over there they have like different stages but unfortunately I didn't get in and here I am <laughs> I, got, I got my place at York massive culture shock though when i came here a lot of people from very kind of well-off middle to upper class mm. backgrounds with who are fantastic musicians like very very talented who've been you know trained in their in their instrument or their style from very young ages um with like private tuition or they went to kind of they were privately educated and that sort of thing which was it was quite difficult at first it was it was something that really made me want to drop out for a while i was like i don't really fit in right um and I was sort of like, I'm not gonna get the grades that I need to get, and like, I was talking to. I remember having a conversation with my supervisor, and I was just saying like, there isn't really opportunities for musicians like me who maybe aren't into Bach and mm-hmm. you know Beethoven and that sort of thing. I was like, it's not my thing. Um, I I just want to you know write my own songs and play them on my acoustic guitar and just be happy with it. Um. And he was like, no, no, honestly, there's so much opportunity for you here. There really is. And and it wasn't actually until my second year when I started seeing that. And with my kind of, with my, because um, you get like an instrumental tutor. So I had a, an instrumental tutor for voice. Um, And she kind of sort of opened my eyes a little bit more and sort of said, look, these are the different things you can do. These are people who have graduated who were in your situation before. Mm. And I think that was like really good to hear. Um. And I kind of started throwing myself into it a little bit more. Um, I did have some complications, though, because I've had, I have two jobs alongside uni. Yeah, of course. Um, so, again, grades started slipping, just like they did the first time when I was 15, so not much change there. Um, and I did have to get extensions, but I've managed to pull my way through second year, and mm. I am looking forward to third year now. But, yeah, here I am, miraculously. That's amazing, though.
0: <laughs> that is, that is yeah. amazing. And, uh yeah, it's funny that you say as well that you know you still you still have two jobs. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. so many university students have to have jobs in the side. Yeah, it's and, crazy. Yeah, and a lot of universities and a lot of courses as well. You can't have you can't exceed in a certain amount of hours that you work a week. Yeah, because it takes away from. I remember in my sixth form that was the case because it takes away from your studies. But I think that's forgetting that a lot of students need the job and they're not just yeah. doing it for fun. You know, they're doing it um, to survive and to have money for yourself as well. I think it's really interesting as well. You're talking about um, kind of come into university and then be in a culture shock because, you know, you can't see anybody around you who's been in the same situation yeah. as you. And I think um, things like, you know, how much opportunity somebody's had through the money that they've had or through the money that's gone into their education, it is something that's quite veiled. You know, you can't see it in people, but it definitely comes out when you speak to them and you know what their interests are, like park yeah. and stuff like that. Um, but I guess the point of kind of the working-class officer role or... There isn't like a working class society or anything at, at York. Is there? um,
1: no, there's main. It's mainly just um, the officer basically yeah. runs campaigns, and a team of people will join on board and sort of do their own thing um, on that, which I think is really good because mm. it means a lot of people can kind of share their own experiences. Because I know that uh, the the sort of working class is almost like a spectrum to me. Yeah, I absolutely. think there are there are so many people who are in different areas of of this working class spectrum, um, and it's sort of good to have representational voices from all of that. And I think it is, it's really important to have that role in place. Definitely. Mm, yeah. um, it's, I think it opens up a lot of doors or even, even just mental barriers that can be broken down by having that representation there. Cause I know for me, I sort of felt like, you know, I'm, I'm too working class to be here and I know that sounds bad to say, but that's how I felt at the time. Um and I'm sure there's a lot of other students who do feel that way. But then when I see other working class students really making a difference, I was like, mm-hmm. hang on, no, I'm not. I can go and talk at this really cool conference. yeah <laughs> So yeah, I think it's it's it opens up a lot of opportunity.
0: Yeah. What was it like to speak at the conference and to be able to talk about your experiences and to have people listen to them?
1: Um It was honestly the most (laughs) nerve-wracking experience of my life. I'd never done anything like that You didn't look nervous. You didn't look nervous. (laughs) I felt like I was going to explode. I was, yeah, I was really nervous. I'd never, I'd never, I mean, I'd done like a bit of public speaking, but not to that degree Mm. before and not about something so personal. Mm. Um, That was the first time I'd really publicly opened up about my experience I mean obviously I've you know I've spoke to it, like to friends about it and that sort of thing and but it was just so different but I think it felt really good to know that I was speaking to a room of people who were really interested in what was what I was saying and who were really kind of valuing all the other different experiences that other people mm. had spoke about um and I think these things do need to be spoke about more publicly as well um especially at universities and like Russell Group universities where a lot of people are privately educated it's important to kind of make people aware that these things, these people are here at uni. Mm. They are at this Russell Group University, the exact same place as you right now, regardless of how you got there.
0: Yeah. Because so. the university has so many hidden costs as well, I've found, and um, that's quite a big thing that I yeah. think, there's definitely our student union talks about, but... Um, just kind of talking about um, kind of the hidden costs of travel. We were talking about before how, you know, if you have a job and you only come in for like one hour of it or something like that, and then you have to pay for the travel to get here. Yeah. Um, and it really does vary from university to university. I was on Northumbria University campus the other day, and they have like a free bus that goes to, to this extent. Like we, we don't have the same in York. But, um, yeah, like university experiences and, and whether or not, you know, you come from a different socioeconomic background, it really does matter at university because the thought needs to be there for young people who don't have the same money or don't have yeah. family links you know to be able to afford things like simply like transport or like food and I think yeah it is something that isn't really thought about a lot in university the research that I did I found it quite interesting because a lot of it was about infants and a lot of it was about primary schools and um, thinking about how free school meals really affected primary school children um, and how they dealt with the stigma of, you know, being given, like, a brown paper bag or, like, you know, going on trips and not having the food and stuff like that. But it really does carry on throughout education, you know, and, and it it's talked about, I think, a little bit more with primary school and secondary school kids, you know, uniforms and free school meals or whatever. The same applies to university students, yeah, you know. <laughs> and it's yeah. like, in a lot of ways as well, it's like things... It seems like nothing is free at university as well, and even just the fees that goes towards university that you don't see come out of your bank account necessarily. The no. the nine thousand pound you don't probably see. Probably a good go. thing. Yeah. You don't see it. Yeah, but it's still you know I've had friends back home who haven't gone to university who who said like you know I can't go to university because I'll have all that debt. Yeah. And you know it's hard to say you know, but it's not real debt because it's like that is real debt, and they know debt, and their families know debt, and it's um yeah it's it's. It's hard to, it's yeah, hard. Yeah,
1: definitely. And I think um, what's, what's sort of really interesting is that um, sort of when when you're at university, you see all these different people from different backgrounds. And in my eyes, the university treats everybody the same, which is a good thing in a way, but also when you've got, you know, maybe say if you had like 20, 20% of your students who need to have two jobs um, just in order to actually live here, and then you've got the other eighty percent who don't need a job at all and their parents can support them as well as having their student loan. It's really not fair to treat everyone the same in that mm. respect. Um and I know that sort of the there are students who should be able to get an extra extra help in hand with things like having to buy books for their course, having to like get an extra printing credits and that sort mm. of thing. Um I mean look because in the music department they've only recently um just this year started online submissions. Um, so before that, we had to print everything out. And I mean, if you're um, analysing, you know, a, a fifty-minute-long piece of music, and you need to print that score out, that's going to be quite costly. And when you've got a when we had a hand in our essays, we had to print out two copies of each. So if you're writing something really long, or if you're using a really long score that you need to you know staple along with your essay when you hand it in, it's it's gonna you know those costs are going to start coming yeah. up, which I thought was absolutely insane. I don't understand why. Um, why they couldn't just use Turnitin before, like every other department? Yeah, um, it was really, it was really strange. It was just a bit behind the times, I mm-hmm. think.
0: Mm-hmm. Have you always found that y- you've been really aware of of these like hidden costs to education? Because like thinking about you know when you went in like fixed accommodation, did you find that how, like how was it to like go? To college every day and like did you find that there were certain barriers there that maybe you, you wouldn't be able to face before or you know weren't? yeah I
1: mean there was there were some times where I literally couldn't afford to get the bus into college so I'd have to miss that day right um and I think there, there's probably students who do get in that sort of situation um and it was I mean it it felt like a big difference going from that to uni but also at the same time not really because I'm, I constantly have to think about whether I'm like going to be able to afford to get a bus in or what if I miss my bus and I'm going to be late I can't afford a taxi mm-hmm. um, even like with, with going to work and that sort of thing and I think it's uh, I think one of the things that shocked me was knowing how many people my age at university do not need a job to support them with little things like that, like it was quite scary because I mean coming from cause I, I come from Houghtonley Spring which is like a you know, small town in between Sunderland and Durham um, and Everyone my age who I know there has a job or has had to have at least one or two jobs since they were like seventeen, eighteen years old. And I think just knowing so many people here who really don't need that, even for these little extra costs to to get the bus, to get a bit of food here and there, to get a taxi here and there. Mm. Even just a little bit extra money for their social life, they don't need a job for that. It was it was crazy to go from, from that to this, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's a real well as you say, it's a real culture shock, I think. Um, the question that I'm really interested in asking as well is, um, you know, obviously you have this role as LGBTQ officer, um, but also you really identify with being like a working class student and has done a lot about kind of raising awareness for the issues that working class students face. Where Where's the intersection of that? You know, because, I mean, I know that I think it's the majority of homeless young people are LGBTQ and they, they face a disproportionate amount of homelessness um in comparison to other kind of intersections um like where do you think those two things are combined with lgbtq issues and in poverty or being working class you know and how how do you accommodate for them like kind of free travel or accessible events and that kind of thing like what do you think
1: i think it's um it definitely is a lot of it is homelessness and um sort of people's parents who who don't accept them for being an lgbtq person who are ending up on the streets it's like they need to be accommodated not just for their homelessness but also for um the the issues that that they've had with their family to do with their identity and like i think um LGBT homeless like homelessness shelters are like a really really good thing but I know that there's been a lot of people who have opposed those and said oh well why do they need separate ones you can't just have like specific ones for LGBTQ people when it's a lot it's LGBTQ people who a lot of the time are scared to go out at night and in in fear of being attacked for just for their identity Mm. is I know if you look at the headlines recently there's so much of that especially in the UK. and it's it's LGBT homeless people who are going to face more of that as well on the street um like they're not just going to be you know you know kicked and spat on for being homeless they're going to be kicked and spat on for being homeless and gay or mm. homeless and trans and it's mm. it's not right, and I feel like th- there does need to be a lot more of a focus from the government to face LGbt issues um but I mean with our new p m you know, who knows <laughs> we'll see. Um, and I think at university um I'm sure I'm not the only person who you know was was kicked out for being gay mm-hmm. or kicked out for being LGBTQ when when I was a young age. I'm sure I am not the only person here. And I think it was something that I'd never really seen addressed and I think what's what's also also is it kind of another added intersectionality was that is LGBTQ international students whose parents might have different views based on you know the laws in their country um what what the, what's their situation going to be when they go back home because they you know they've come over here they've got this sense of freedom where they can be who they are are they going to be homeless when they get back home mm. it's it's a real issue and it's something that needs to be addressed like in in all areas i think
0: yeah have you been able to work with them in your role like do you see like a a large variance of like lgbt people and, and what kind of socioeconomic background they've had yeah like intersectionality is
1: definitely something that i like to focus on a lot because there is so much of it um and there are so many like different things that can combine to make someone's life very difficult um which is it's really it is sad to see but it's something that i like to pay close attention to which was another kind of idea behind lgbtq level two campaign and we had people speaking from different countries like i've previously mentioned um just um to talk about What it's actually like to be a gay person in these countries, or to be a trans person, and people from different religious backgrounds as well, Um, and so as well as different class backgrounds, and it's it's so important to look at it. And I think um, if I think our our liberation officers like for this next year really need to pay close attention to issues to do with poverty because it's something that is on the rise and that that, that's for me is especially working class lgbtq um bim and international students Mm. is is something that really needs to be like looked at a lot more
0: can I ask what a liberation officer is is uh, that the word that you said yeah liberation yeah. <laughs> officer
1: that's just um the PTOs who represent the um liberation groups okay um so that's like BAME international women's um, LGBTQ working class
0: right okay yeah. and do you, are you able to work together do you re- yeah yeah we okay. can
1: work together um we have like officer groups, so um that's like once a term where we all meet and we basically plan what mm-hmm. we're going to do um for the next year so um and we have but we also have um separate liberation and welfare meetings so Steph Hill who is the um wellbeing sab um she will kind of coordinate these meetings and we can all talk together and we also have like um our disabled students officers they come along to that so it's but also like any any representatives from any sub networks um can come along so it's not just the officers ourselves it's our committees as well mm. so um, for example, with the, the DSN, they're setting up their mental health network, which is fantastic. Um, that's going to be set up over the next year. They'll be coming to these meetings as well. Um, so it's a good place for us all to kind of sit down and, and really talk about issues mm. that are going on. Um, and yeah. it's something, this is something that I have raised a lot um, with liberation and welfare. And I think it's, um, it's really important that the next working class officers try and, and incorporate this information as much as they can. Yeah, yeah. absolutely.
0: Um, I guess my last question is... What do you think can be done in universities, I suppose, specifically to to help working class students or students that experience poverty? Um, because I think that... You know, it is a really unsaid thing when students experience poverty. And I don't think anyone's really looked at the extents of it because, you know, students are kind of known to be, yeah. you know, kind of like, you know, we have very low standards for accommodation, blah, 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 blah. But often that's out of not really having a choice, but to live in really poor accommodation. Yeah. Um, You know, it's just, just ridiculous kind of circumstances where, you know, just because students are thought to kind of live these kind of scroungy lives, you know, it's like that we should be and that we shouldn't be able to you know have nice things just because we can't afford it and and how often when it comes to who gets the best university experience it's not it's not working class students you know and it's not students that can afford to have nicer accommodation or you know accommodation that you know has good landlords or whatever or the best kind of equipment or the best kind of books or whatever um yeah back to my point (laughs) is um what can universities do to help working class students um or bring awareness to the issue of poverty within universities
1: i think the main the main point for me is that universities need to stop relying on students to fix the issues at universities because we simply don't have the power or the resources or the money to do that. Like, yes, we have a fantastic student union, like most universities do, but there really is only so much we can do. And our job is to pretty much ask the university for things that they literally just have the power to say no to, regardless of what that is. And I think they need to. the university really needs to... Well, any university really needs to close the gap between working class and middle to upper class students because there is a huge divide, especially. I mean, I've noticed at this university that the sort of the class divide is massive. Um, and I think they really need to improve the standards of the lower priced accommodation just because, like you say, it makes you kind of feel like you're this kind of like scroungy student. Mm. And it's almost like they're setting that standard for you before you even get here. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's just not acceptable, really. And I think there definitely needs to be a lot more work towards cutting these hidden costs on your course, like especially some of the books that you need to get. The, the prices are on, on those are insane. I know people who've spent, like, two to £300 yeah. like per term on, on these books and that sort of thing. And, you know, once you take your accommodation out of that and then you've got to pay that, it's, it really doesn't leave you with much left over. Um, and I think the university really just needs to look at the statistics of sort of how how much these uh, accommodation buildings are costing um, and how many people can actually afford that they really mm. need to take a look into that and they need to take a look in the statistics of how many students here have been privately led privately educated and sort of sit and go right are we accommodating for those who have been struggling mm. or are we just ignoring them and sweeping them under the same carpet as everybody else because mm-hmm. um, I feel like that's what universities are really good at yeah. they're fantastic at like covering things with a blanket and saying that nah, it's not there um when actually a lot of working class students who do struggle are here mm-hmm. and are continuously struggling through <laughs> at least you know two or three years of their studies and it's just not acceptable yeah um and i think they they need to just address it a lot more firmly yeah,
0: yeah. and that's a really powerful message <laughs> thank you so <laughs> much for coming on the podcast today that's all right thanks, thanks very much <laughs>